Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I thank you for joining us. This week, I am exceptionally excited, as you can imagine, not just because Alison Rudd is back, but making his return after a 10-year hiatus, maybe longer, mostly for religious reasons, as he retreated to, was it Kerala, where you have been doing yoga for the last 10 years? Yes. It's Mr. Bill Edgar. Later on, we're going to be joined uh, by another numbers guru, Duncan Alexander, who you may know from Opta. He runs the Opta Joe account. I spoke to him about how Opta works, about his new book, Outside the Box, which kind of tells the uh, the history of, of Opta and, uh, and and collecting numbers in football. And uh, also, I asked him about Allison's favorite stat, expected goals. But first, there's only one place to start in this week, and that's at Stamford Bridge. Allison, Chelsea take on Manchester City. It's a heavyweight clash. Um, it's, some people would say, City's first big away test this season. Um, forget the scoreline. They clearly won this, yeah? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a strange game in, in many respects. I think it's hard to see this game in, in a perspective that isn't about Chelsea, to be honest, because I felt their approach played into City's hands. Not entirely sure why Conte was so deeply conservative. Uh, Chelsea played very deep. They didn't target any possible weak areas. I mean, you know, Delph, although he played well, he wasn't really asked any questions. There were lots of personnel mysteries, but one of them was, why didn't you play Victor Moses and attack Delph down the left? I mean, why don't you do that? Instead, they just left him alone. The, the mindset seemed to be one of, golly, you know, they've had a day extra rest. They haven't had to travel. They're in good form. Let's just, you know, soak it up. Maybe maybe try and get a draw out of this. I'm not quite sure if you're the champions of England. That's the right approach. It seemed peculiar. Chelsea just retreated. And their game was built around getting the ball to Morata. And Morata's very good at holding the ball up. Um, Morata goes off injured. Well, we'll get there. We've got, we got time to spend on this. Well, one... I know, I'm making a list a list of things. But, you, I mean, but my, I suppose my basic point to start this off is Chelsea's I think it's about Chelsea's approach rather than City's brilliance because City have an array of great attacking talent. We knew that. Surely it was about how Conte approached that fact and he didn't approach it terribly well. All right, um, I'll make the Conte counter-argument. Yes. Because I'm fairly sure this is what he was thinking. The Atletico Madrid game took a lot out of them uh, mentally, just with the late goal and, and whatnot. He was deeply concerned about City's ability to keep the ball and move the ball in midfield. He had somebody watch the Shakhtar Donetsk game, the first 45 minutes, where they kind of picked their spots in terms of counterattacking quickly, which helped nullify City's press really for the first time, I think this season. And he figured that Morata, you know, with the high line, you can say, well, but, you know, he didn't get anywhere with it. Yeah, but, you know, it only takes one mistake from Stones or Otamendi, one mistake or indeed one perfectly timed move from Morata to send him through on goal. I think it was that, plus Hazard running at people, win set pieces. You've got a much bigger team with Alonso, Bakayoko, Rudiger, Christensen, Cahill, uh, and Morata, that was the logic behind them. Question is, why didn't it work? Was it because City were just were just better? Bill, 
I think City were a lot better. Yeah, really, I, I think the game it was more about what what City did. Really, I, I would say one. Um, Sorry, if I can just flag up. We have a difference of opinion. We have a difference of opinion. Alison says it's more about Chelsea and what they did wrong, and you're saying it's more about City and what they did right. So you've got to say it's about the referee then. (laughs) But the one thing about Chelsea, I would say that they played um, N'Golo Conte further forward than than he's accustomed to. If he was alongside Bakayoko as a definite two defensive midfielders, that would have reduced the space for Silva and De Bruyne, certainly. But he played a bit further forward, surprisingly. Aside from that, Man City got their um, closing down spot on the entire team. It was like watching Barcelona, at least in terms of defending. It was like watching Barcelona about 2010, 2011, that sort of era. Because um, Chelsea, just every time they got the ball, they had two or three players closing down on them. And all the options they had for passes, all their teammates were, were closed down as well. So it, they would have had to play exceptionally well, and occasionally they, they will do, but they would have had to play exceptionally well to get past that, and they just couldn't do. If Now, if City can play like that for the whole season, then they're going to get 90 points and almost certainly win the league. Whether they can, I'm not sure. I guess that's what... Guardiola is, has been trying to do since he arrived at City. Isn't the argument to that then why be conservative with with Alonso? And I mean, if you are being pressed that way, one way to counter it is send your wing backs further up, send Alonso and Espiliqueta f- further forward. Is that, is that a mistake Conte made? Uh, yeah, well, I guess Conte was surprised that City played that well. I mean, City just generally don't play that well defensively, closing teams down. It was a surprise that they were doing that at the start of the game. He was probably thinking maybe City would tire and eventually Chelsea's game plan would work out OK. So perhaps he should have changed things after an hour. But with City, and on top of their great defensive display, on the attack, City got De Bruyne and Silva. So normally one player like that, they're both absolute title-winning players. One player like that is a, a gift for any, any team. But to have two players like that, both in the centre as well, the, the way City set up, they've got one defensive midfielder and two just ahead of them and then three forwards beyond them including two wingers so they've got these two unbelievably good attacking midfielders in the center so you can't really man mark them you'd need two man markers to to stop that and once you start go to two man markers your your game plan is really uh restricted Conte made a big deal out of the fact that well we had to go play away from home on a on a wednesday and they played at home on a tuesday um, Negative reinforcement, that's what that is. It's interesting. I always wondered about the psychology, you know, and it, does it become a, a self-fulfilling prophecy when people come out and say stuff like that? Obviously, He's been, he's been saying it lots. Too much, I think. He's been banging on it about it for weeks and weeks. Well, it's curious because I know a guy who is a professional gambler and he's got a whole army of eggheads who do this very advanced statistical modeling has been doing it a long time and he makes enormous amounts of money doing it and he's had studies specifically on the impact of of an extra day's rest versus not having it and he says there's basically no difference whatsoever at least in terms of outcomes and and results is that once there's a, a three-day gap say wednesday to saturday that's fine but if it's Thursday to Saturday, or you know, a two-day well, gap. Then he looked at he looked at the, the difference in rest between the two sides, right? Um, so between a three-day gap and a four-day gap, let's say. No, no, no. Between between Allison played on Wednesday and you played on Tuesday, and you guys face each other on Saturday, yeah. right? So it's it's the gap 
between the two teams, not necessarily between between the last two games. And he said it really was it's it's statistically insignificant. And he looked at a database of you know ten thousand games or, or or whatnot. And yet managers keep coming back to it. And I wonder if maybe they obviously they change the way they prepare as a result. I do have to say. I don't know what the rest of the city team did. I, I'm assuming they didn't go with Aguero to Amsterdam to watch a concert. But if one of those days they had entirely off and they weren't actually preparing for the Chelsea game, did it really make that much of a difference? It felt like Conte had diluted all that adoration and adulation and praise that came their way for their result against Atletico. I mean, there was a whole raft of, wow, you know, English football's back in Europe. We could actually win the Champions League this year. Really, really well against yeah, so what? So what do you do with that? That's a really important thing to go into a game against City. We are potentially the best team in Europe right now. You can build on that. Instead, Conte just kept bleating on about how oh, they've had longer to rest than we have. I just think psychologically, and it's harder to measure those psychological things, but the, the vibe around Chelsea was one of being miffed as opposed to feeling superior. And then if you add to that the fact that their lineup was one of deference, I feel, to City rather than trying to find uh, weak spots, I feel if you could go back in time and change the way you approach that game, Chelsea could have won it. I, I think it's pretty simple. I don't know if it was necessarily one of deference, but against a team that presses the way they do when you don't have David Luiz. And again, I, I think Christensen's actually so good on the ball that I don't think there's much difference between him and Luiz in terms of the ball, but Conte obviously doesn't feel that way. I think he felt when you when you play City, who are, you know are going to press you, he felt he needed to have Cesc Fabregas in the team. And he felt he needed to have somebody, and the reason why Spiliqueta played on the flank, again, is... I want to have another guy who's comfortable on the ball, certainly more comfortable than than Victor Moses if I need to retain possession and, and, and stuff like that. And if you put Sesk in the team, you either play Sesk and Conte, in which case you're asking Conte. I know there's two of them, but you're still asking them to single-handedly try to keep De Bruyne and, uh, and the other maniac at, at bay. You stick Pakayoko in, and at that point, you have to sacrifice one of your strikers. Uh, I don't know. I, I wish he'd look at, he would have looked at other stuff, like maybe... This might have been a game for a back four. Absolutely a game for a back four. Why do you why play three at the back when you're marking one centre forward? Complete waste of personnel, isn't it? It's not just one centre forward because Sonny and Sterling come at you too. But yeah, I, I think this this could have been a game where I think with the right comfort levels, um he could have done that. And what a surprise. You know, you, I don't think I don't think City were given anything to worry about. On the other hand, you go Christensen and Cahill and you lose and people tell you what a dope you are. You know, so I think there's a lot of things that Conte could have done better, but by the same token, I just think you really have to doff your cap to to the pep. Uh, one final thing on this point, there's a line which Conte's camp love putting out, and obviously it goes back to the summer and stories again about him leaving at the end of the season, that Chelsea's squad is just too thin and too weak relative to cities. And I think it's kind of hard to divorce the personnel from the way they play, because especially because cities style is so distinctive is Chelsea's squad really that much weaker than City's when when you go through it I mean if you ask me Courtois versus Ederson I'll take Courtois every day of the week uh Kyle Walker's been playing well but he's still Kyle Walker <laughs> Otamendi and Stones versus Chelsea's center backs again I don't I certainly don't see a big gap there in fact I think Chelsea center backs are probably better um Alonso for this system is 
I mean, Mendy's fantastic, but Mendy's not there. You know, where you get into a difference is, like you said, going forward, perhaps, where they got many more options and, and, and better options. Yeah, Man City have got uh, great options going forward, but still have Chelsea, Willian, Pedro, Hazard, Fabregas, all brilliant creative players. So I don't think there's a problem there. One one thing you would say is that Chelsea only have one proper centre forward. So when Morata, what about Batsman? Well, well, yeah, can we go? Aren't you stop me mentioning that at the very beginning? Because I don't want to bring out the Batsman. Okay, because he lurks in the why? shadows. He, he doesn't hold the ball up well. Okay, I accept that. And Morata does. Morata goes off. You're not going to replace like for like if you bring the Batman on. For Murata, ooh, there's lots of tutters in there. But um, by, by, I, the, way, I by the way, I, I know Batman's much cooler. But when he sent that tweet out, he actually referred to himself as Batsman, which is better. Which is better. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but but on so many levels, it, again, it gave off the message that oh, we've got nobody on the bench, and I don't know what it's saying about what Mishi will now think for the rest of the season. He just had his confidence boost by scoring the winner. In Spain, and you then turn around and say, "Oh, you're just not good enough." And it's such an obvious contrast with City, where who lose Aguero uh, for perhaps a couple of months, but they've got Jesus who can come in, and he's a ready-made centre forward, and will play there for the next two months. Time now for our goal of the week segment. As you know, this season, with your subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League, Champions League, and Europa League. Also, if you're into the FA Cup, the greatest cup competition in the world, so they tell me, uh, from the third round. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. So with that in mind, Alison, I'm going to ask you, what was your favourite goal of the weekend in the Premier League? And I dare you to say Jose Lu. I'm not going to say that. But um, Charlie, the producer, did ask me this question while I was eating a peach. And while I was eating the peach... Coutinho scored a peach of a goal. So it seemed like this was aligned in the stars. Uh, it was a beautiful goal, and he does have a sort of trademark way of curling it in. And um, I spent a lot of time over the past week talking about how when you watch Harry Kane, you sort of don't doubt he'll score. And I think Coutinho's a bit like that. You can just tell it's going to be beautifully placed. And it was it was the positioning of his, of his goal that was so delightful. Bill, you went for something more prosaic, I assume. Uh, well, a different kind of goal. Um, Arsenal's second goal against Brighton, where Alexis Sanchez showed his genius. There was a, it was the, for most of the game, Arsenal were camped about 30 yards from Brighton's goal in the centre. Five of them were trying to pass through seven Brighton defenders. Uh, nobody allowed to pass the ball more than five yards. And on this occasion, it, it worked. Ramsey first time pass. Sanchez took the ball, drew four Brighton opponents by running leftwards inside the penalty area, and he never looked, I've gone over the video, he never looked to see where Iwobi was, but he just had this sense, I think, that given that four opponents were following him leftwards in the penalty area near near the D, uh, if he backheeled the ball, it's going to go into a lot of space, and there's a fair chance there'll be a colleague there. Sure enough, there was. Iwobi was there. And he finished. Not many people know this, but Alexis Sanchez is, uh, as you know, like he's three quarters human, one quarter bat. So he's got that that, that weird sonar that extends in all directions. No, I, I loved the Wolby afterwards saying like, he wasn't expecting the pass. He was just like, he's like, yeah, I had no idea. I, I had no idea it was coming. I still haven't worked out how he knew I was there. 
the Rafa Benitez Derby at St. James's Park. Um, Bill, uh, as a, I think you're very much a neutral um, in, uh, in 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 this game. For a team that plays the kind of football that Klopp plays, I thought it was kind of frustrating, or it must have been frust- almost bittersweet that their one goal comes as a result of a brilliant individual strike, which really has nothing to do with the system or or anything. Uh, somebody shooting from there is is a very low percentage shot. And then to add insult to injury, we go back and we talk about the defending that that really bizarre and frankly unlucky because in the end, I mean in real time, I thought it was oh look, Josélu, Josélu's finished and boy, Mignolet a fool again. But no, actually, it's it's Matip's recovery tackle that sends the ball off of Fosselli, which sends it past the keeper. Klopp was unlucky. Was he? Yeah. He, did he deserve to win the game? Yes, he certainly deserved to win. I mean, he really... Uh, so Rafa's a big, fat fraud. <laughs> really, uh, if your team dominates like that and has far more chances, then it suggests you've got the game plan right. If um, it's it's down to your 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 forwards not finishing. I mean, all I can say is you, perhaps Liverpool. Uh, it's it's not the first time that's happened. That they should just focus on uh, finishing uh, of their forwards. Um, get into more psychology with with the forwards in terms of getting the right frame of mind when they're getting fairly straightforward chances. Um, the likes of Salah. He's had a good start at Liverpool, but. He's missed a, a stack of chances, um, which could have added plenty of points for Liverpool. But this has been the case for a, a long time with Liverpool. Alison, are, are you on board with, with that analysis? No, I think something's going a bit wrong. It wasn't an aberration. The fact is, this is how Liverpool play all the time now. But that goal was an aberration and I actually kind of thought no it wasn't an aberration actually oh no no because the, the, the it was a very let's give Newcastle credit Shelby's pass was excellent the run was excellent the defending was rubbish how many that, times that's... do you see people say no, centre back shouldn't be so no, far no, no, apart Alison, I know. It's, so far it's a defensive pitch. it's a defensive aberration from from Liverpool. I know afterwards Klopp said, well, there were people in the way and they couldn't see him that he was about to hit. The, but no, they, they, then you see the replay. There's nobody in the way. You've got a very clear sight line. They're standing square, like two bowling pins, and he's directly between them. Yeah. It's like, it's like yeah. if they're oh, let, let's give him as much as possible, as much space as we possibly yeah, can. We're agreeing. We're agreeing. Yeah. That, it's a combination of poor, poor defense and good attack. Yeah, okay, but... That is an ab- well. What I'm getting at is: is it an aberration in the sense that both these two guys decided to go to sleep at the same time, or is this something that is is, is a symptom of of a manager who who maybe doesn't I don't know doesn't spend enough time working on defending and because it should be second nature. This this is just horrendous. Well, let's compare Liverpool to City at the mo- just at the moment. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the backline of um, City and the backline of Liverpool, they have similar shape, identity, mm-hmm. philosophy, and all the hard pressing work is done in the opposition's half of yes. the pitch. But City have upped their pressing this season, and Liverpool have decreased it. So th- there there isn't really that much going on. On the rare occasions that Newcastle did have possession. They weren't as distracted as Chelsea were or whoever's playing against City are. You can't play that way defensively unless you're still going for the press full pelt. And they're not now. Liverpool are not. There was a very good piece in the Sunday Times, Jonathan Norcroft. Uh, all the stats are showing that Liverpool have backed off. Um, they're just, they're, their intensity has dipped. So 
it, it, there's a contradiction there, isn't there? If you're going to give people like Shelby time to play a pass, why, why, I mean, why give him the route to goal? I, I mean, because you expect you because because we're talking because this is Oselu, this isn't Hussein Bolt, and you expect Matip in a foot race to be able uh, to be able to handle a ball that's over the uh, that's over the top, even if even if uh, even if it's very accurate. But to be able to do that, he has to be, have his body positioning right, and he's got to be in the right position, and so does the other guy covering behind. If on the other hand, these people switch off, and I know I, people make mistakes, and if you want to say it's it's an individual error, fine, everybody makes mistakes. But to have both of them in that situation, I... I oh, the I, fact is they're not that good. I mean, if you were... To, if you it's not a question of being show, good, it's a question of being awake. But being good is about being awake as well. It's about having that concentration. I mean, defending is about concentration more than anything else and that awareness of where the next threat's going to come from. If you could cherry-pick from any team in the top six or seven or eight which central defenders you might want, you probably wouldn't go to Liverpool to steal any of them, would you? I mean, they're not, they're not that good. And, I don't, and, and I don't Klopp they, doesn't seem to think it matters very much. I don't think they had to be that good to uh, snuff out that possibility. And, and this business with Liverpool's intensity and the press dropping off, I, I can't say good. When pressing teams work, all of a sudden it's like, oh, look, they're hunting in packs. They come up with these stupid things. And we see the highlights. Oh, look, look. It's one way to play. And no team actually presses for 90 minutes unless you're Borussia Dortmund and you insanely leave everybody up the pitch the whole time. And even then you're not going to be able to maintain the same intensity because it's extremely tiring to do unless at the same time you've got 70% possession, which City sometimes do have. I, I don't have a problem with Klopp dropping the intensity or pressing differently or pressing in different areas. I think that's a sign of of maturity and evolution. And, and if I'm going to put Coutinho in my midfield, then I probably do need to do that. But I just can't fathom these mistakes again. And when, when Klopp comes out afterwards and says, well, you always talk about the bad things, so maybe it has an impact on my players. I'm like, what, what are they, babies? I mean, Dejan Lovren's a professional footballer. Dejan Lovren has been criticized for the bad parts in his game since he was in France. I think, was it Lyon, was it, or, or Saint-Étienne, one of those clubs? Bef- before he ever came to Southampton, right? He knows he's got these things to work on. That's fine. He works on them. You take the good with the bad. But... I don't like being sold this notion that because we criticize them, then they play badly. I know. Does that, that doesn't make sense, does it, Alison? No, I, I don't think Lovren reads the papers, to be quite honest. I just don't think he does. Yeah, he probably gets criticism from Klopp, and then he, he, he's a professional footballer. Lovren doesn't get where Lovren got if he can't handle criticism, and he doesn't exactly, take it as a, yeah. a, 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 as a spur to do better. Um, I want to just talk, talk Rafa. All summer long, we've had this ongoing Rafa... Ashley situation and spend more money or don't spend more money. If I were Mike Ashley, and I appreciate Mike Ashley has apparently no friends in the media or among fans or whatever, but I'm going to try to turn myself into into an Ashleyite. Um, in fact, as Duncan Castles is to Mourinho, I will be to Mike Ashley for a minute, and I'll say, you know what, all you ungrateful Geordies and you ungrateful Rafa, you busted my chops all summer long, spend money, do this, back the manager, blah, blah, blah. You know what? I was proved right. I gave him the bare minimum he needed, and now he's in the top half of the table because he's a good manager who I hired, right? The new signings that I brought in, several of them haven't even haven't even played very much. I was proved right again, and I shouldn't listen to all you fans and so-called football journalists who are just just hate me because I'm a cockney. 
and, and is this rough? Is this manipulative rough? Uh, more money, more spending. You had it at Liverpool. He's always wanting, oh, net spend. Give me more money. I want more things. Same thing in Inter Milan. Give me this. Give me that. I need more, right? He does tend to, right? If I mean, why am I actually here? Barely. I think he's been very uh, restrained and contained, Rafa, actually. Because he was promised and not given more well, than he promised got. Promised by who? Sorry. Did, did, did Mike Ashley go on television and say, I pledge that I will give Rafa £50 million pounds in net spend to spend this summer? Did he I say think, that? No, I think the deal was, I wasn't privy to it, but the impression you get is that yeah. he stayed to see them through um, the promotion to the Premier League campaign on the basis that if he got them there, when he got them there, he would have money to spend. Carrot and stick. You're not gonna. You're not gonna not. spend a year in the championship unless you think you're going to be allowed to, at least, do reasonably well in the Premier League. I'm when obviously you get playing devil's advocate here, but I think we should all be mindful of the fact that when these conversations happen, there's two parties. One is Rafa. One is Mike, and Rafa is the one who's more likely of the two to talk and tell you his version of events. Yes. Yes, Mike Ashley obviously never talks to, doesn't seem to talk to anyone. He doesn't talk to the, the media, barely. He doesn't talk to Benitez, apparently. He hasn't spoken for three or four months. Um, I don't know what the, the problem is. I mean, how he can't speak to the, the manager, why is he not doing that? It just doesn't make He doesn't make want s- to be in charge anymore. He wants but, to but just, just have a chat. I mean, you know, just he ask. He did offer him his helicopter when he had his hernia problem. Newcastle's net spending has been reasonably high in uh, in the top 10 of the Premier League clubs in terms of the transfer fees any, anyway. Um, so I don't think they're very low relative to the other promoted clubs. Well, I've, this goes back a few few years. The, the, the spending is not too bad. I think the, the, he just made a few odd decisions, not least not speaking to his manager. It's just, it just it creates a feeling of instability. But uh, there's this talk, of course, about... Um, possible takeover Good transition now that just just to set this up amanda staveley everybody's second favorite blonde businesswoman she was seen in the stands and for people who don't know she was involved with the manchester city takeover back in the day she's an advisor i think is a good way to say it um to to a fund in the gulf she also has a whole bunch of personal relationships with uh, different uber wealthy people she was long linked to be involved in the takeover of Liverpool. And you almost wonder, isn't it funny? Because which Liverpool furiously denied and say the club's not for sale and blah, blah, blah. It's funny. She's there. People assume that she's taking over Newcastle. <laughs> I wonder if she was there to, to but whatever. Maybe she'll buy them both. <laughs> How cool would it be if she bought them both and she merged them? <laughs> right? No, anyway. This is good for Newcastle, right? Since the fans don't like Ashley? I think so. They Newcastle has potential as a club they've throughout their history they've had the they've been in the top eight or ten clubs for the highest average attendance they've got the fan base there which is the indicator for for being a big club long term and gives you the potential for for being successful so they'd be a good club to invest in for some reason long term they've underperformed you have to go back to the 20s since they won the league and the, the 50s since they won a domestic cup but um, around 15 years ago, under Bobby Robson, they were they were getting regularly in the top five. So, um, so I think with a decent amount of money, they would. You could expect them to be part of the top six, or it would be a top seven if they joined it. If you, uh, if, you if you if you Bill had if you were terribly rich, and you, you you want to buy a Premier League club, 
I'm struggling to think why you wouldn't buy Newcastle. No, I, th- I think really? they're in a good. I think they're in a good position because uh, Benitez, don't have to build Benitez a new stadium. Has, well, I, and also, you, they've got all the fans and, and they're quite stable now. That doesn't look like they're going to go down. With Benitez there, he said uh, he's had the end of two seasons ago, the tail end of the season when they went down, and now the start of this season, they've had I think it's six wins, seven draws, six defeats. So that's kind of mid-table. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Delighted to be joined now by uh, Duncan Alexander, who is uh, the head of editorial content at Opta. You've written a book, um, Outside the Box, the subhead is A Statistical Journey Through the History of Football, which is, um, I'm always struck by how like there's a title which can go any which way, but then the publisher's always like, make sure the subhead tells us exactly what it is. And this is pretty much it. Yeah. Um, I want to get a sense from you, though, before we we get to, to the book itself and what's in it. Opta Opta's actually younger than the Premier League, mm. amazingly. 2002? Uh, it's kind of had a few iterations. So the, It was formed in 96 by a marketing company who wanted to come up with an index, so to rank players, essentially, um, like they used to do in cricket in, the, in that era. Um, and to do it, they had to analyse the games and record the data, and they did. And it was reasonably popular for a few months, but then people quickly realised that the actual raw data that went behind the index was, was more popular, more useful than the, the kind of essentially random number that was applied <laughs> right. to it. So from then on, you know, the data existed, and, and as time's gone on, we've added more complexity and more depth to it. This is a question I get asked a lot, and I have the opportunity to get an answer. How do you collect the data? Did you ever do it when you were, because it sounds frightfully boring. Yeah, no, I've never done it. Really? Not even when you were junior starting out? You just made the tea? No, I kind of, my my job's always been to kind of take that raw data and kind of fashion something out of it. All right, so tell me about the drones that collect the raw data. (laughs) It's a pretty tough job. It takes them about six months to be trained and, and let loose. They collect around 2,000 bits of information per game. It's a combination of, obviously, human eye and computer software that we've built ourselves. So you just said 2,000 bits of information. Yeah, but between two people, so roughly 1,000 each. So one, one for the home team, one for the away team. Okay, so there's 90 minutes in a football match, and so that's 5,400 seconds? About that, yeah. And if they collect... A thousand points each. They're collecting one every yeah. five point four seconds. Yeah. So if you think so that, nobody goes for a bathroom break. Do they no, wear those they, diapers like astronauts? That would, so they, they, that would they, be revealing too much, okay. possibly. But um, they're, yeah, they're the only people that love a really serious injury because they can actually just you know right. weep quietly for a few minutes before it kicks off again. But um, yeah, if you think they're collecting the start and end point of every event, so if a player passes, you know, if Barcelona are making a particularly intricate series of passes, that's a, that's two. Um, bits of information plus the type of pass, so three or four maybe per per pass. 
fast, you know, so you can quickly see how it ramps up during a game. How do they collect the data? Do they have like special keys and stuff? Yeah, and... so it's kind of a, we've kind of reconfigured a, a standard computer keyboard. Um, so they can, with their left hand, they type in like player shirt number and, and additional details and then they use a mouse to basically track on a, a 2D image of a pitch but they're transposing that from a 3D image of the game. So that's what probably takes them the, the longest time to work out is the camera will always centre on the ball pretty much when you're watching TV but that isn't where it necessarily is on the pitch so they have to think, right, the ball's actually in the corner but my brain is saying it's in the middle. So that's what takes a long time to train, I think. If you think we're supplying professional clubs, we're providing um, bookmakers, you know, spread betting, we can't make errors. It has to be accurate. So, again, that's why it takes a long time before, before someone's let loose. And they do this off the box, right? Off television? Yeah, we get... We obviously have it's relationships... It's impossible to do when it's... We did an exhibition game in the summer for some people in the media um, and did that live at a ground, which taxed our analysts quite a lot because they were at the corner of the pitch. Michael Cox scored, I believe. He did, yeah. Quite nice a good little toe-poke yeah. finish, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, generally it has to... I mean, we're official with a lot of leagues, so you know we can get um, you know raw footage, which helps as well. So, um, But if you don't have TV pictures, you can't... No. Do it, or it's no. But the the flip side to that is, if we if there are TV pictures, we can do any game. So the chapter in the book is about the history of the World Cup. A few years ago, we went back and reanalyzed every World Cup from 1966 onwards, and basically because that's the first World Cup where every game was televised. So for every match in every World Cup from 1966 through to 2014, we have every pass, every shot, every tackle. So you know that means you can start comparing Pele with Maradona with Zidane. So you know it opens up you know pretty interesting data. I often get angry and sometimes throw things at my television when people take some of your data, or, or maybe it's not your data, it's data in general, totally out of context, where they'll be like, oh, look, so-and-so has a 92% passing percentage and so-and-so has a 90% passing percentage. Does it frustrate you because it's actually completely meaningless, that one number on its own? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we... Like you would, you guys wouldn't put it out. No, we you just give them the raw data, and that's yeah. the easiest thing to spot. You know, we sell data to people, and we people want to use it in stupid ways. Yeah, that we are we will advise, and we kind of, in, in many ways, our, our social media channels are a kind of way of curating that and kind of, you know, guiding people. Like we've slowly managed to get people off the usage of tackle success over the last few years because ultimately tackle success in your head to the to the average fan they think you know Bobby Moore sliding in and winning the ball that's it but actually tackle success in the original definition was literally about who retained possession after the ball so you can make an amazing tackle but it goes to an opposition player it's technically a tackle loss so you know ultimately that number was kind of being used a little bit wrongly so yeah I mean we will always kind of guide and, and hope to sort of lead and, and hope people follow and I think obviously this season we'll have launched a, a range of new metrics which hopefully uh, you know are kind of a, the next generation of football data really. What are some of them? So things like expected goals, expected assists, um, sequences so if you think of like raw numbers then you've got stats you know things like past completion and stuff and then it's the next kind of level on top of that really analytics so we have a team of data scientists now um, who are building models um, and there's a chapter in the book about the history of data actually um, and it looks at Charles Reap who obviously you know you can disagree with his conclusions which were a bit awry but you can't really um, knock his ambition to collect data but what he was very limited by was 
you know, it was literally him with a pencil and a notepad in a, in, a, in a ground. You know, he couldn't scale it up. We now live in a world where we can scale up the collection of data um, and we have the tools and the computer power to analyse that data in, you know, in much deeper ways and, and hopefully more insightful ways than ever before. For those who are interested in this kind of thing, Jonathan Wilson does this massive takedown of Charles Reap in one of his books where... Charles Reaper famously said if Brazil passed the ball less, they'd be the best team in the world. Yeah. Um, and uh, or he thinks he, he miscounted something. Or, or Yeah, well, I managed to dig out a copy of some sports magazine from the early 60s that an old man on the south coast was selling. And it's got an article by Charles Reap in it. Um, basically, he starts off quite reasonable. And by the end, it's kind of a sort of proto-Brexit rant about, like, you know, overcomplicating the game, <laughs> really? and it's the it's amazing. This is in the book. Yeah, it's in the book. It's um some of the phraseologies just you know he basically just loses the plot towards the end and starts ranting about you know overcomplication and continental style. He sort of counted the number of passes that preceded every goal, and what he found was that a huge amount of goals were scored with just one pass. But what he didn't take into account that, you know, that was often after a period of pressure, somebody lost the ball in his own in his own uh, area or, or say a, a corner kick, which gets flicked on. Oh, look, it's just one pass. And that doesn't necessarily mean that passing is bad, right? No. That, that was one of his fallacies. And again, it, it ultimately goes back to possibly a little bit. He, him being a bit dogmatic, but also the the limits of what he could collect. He's, he was he, all he could do was see what he could see with his eyes. You know, even now we've got a new metric called um, sequencing, which is basically looking at a bit like in basketball. You take uh, a point where a team starts possession and then when they end the possession you know you can extract that chunk and look at it we've had that data for for many years but we have only recently been able to do it last season Alexis Sanchez was involved in more sequences that led to a shot on goal than any other player in the Premier League by quite a distance you could never do that by the naked eye and you couldn't even do it five years ago with the opta data that it was hidden in we, you know we're, we're only now being able to kind of delve even deeper and, and extract that sort of stuff um one thing, I mean, you mentioned before expected goals um, this year. They're on match of the day. Mm. Um, I myself had a run in a couple of years ago with Craig Burley over that, at Twitch. Yeah. Um, one of the difficulties with expected goals, I find, is explaining it in 30 seconds or less. Yeah. Do you want to have a go? I think people get misled slightly with the with the phrase expected goals. They kind of imagine it's predicting something when actually it's obviously looking back at what uh, what's happened. And it's basically kind of rating the quality of a chance. So we obviously have hundreds and thousands of uh, shots in our database, each with a X and Y coordinate. Um, so whenever someone takes a shot, we can compare that player and that outcome that he had with all the other ones in similar outcome with you know similar game state and um, whether it was a header whether it came from across the set piece type all that sort of thing so you can basically build a probability model you know you can say 10,000 shots from this position 5% of people scored it but this player when he um, is in that position is better or worse so it's actually a way of spotting runs of form or whether a player is good or not and I think the key thing again it goes back to your point about the human eye and the knowledge of the game is expected goals can can shine a light on something on how a player is playing but you still have to make a judgement call um, on whether that player is doing better than expected because he's a good player or whether it's just a sort of hot streak of form so you look at someone like Messi where he takes his shots from the average player wouldn't score as many goals as Messi and that I'm pretty 
confident that's because Messi's very good at football. You look at Harry Kane, he's done it for the last three seasons, and you know, everyone said he's one, overperformed expected goals. Exactly. So, one season wonder, and then two season wonder, and I think people have now, despite another goalless August, people are, you know, accept that he's a very good good player. But you can then look at play, some players will, will overperform for a period, you know, Jamie Vardy in that, um, that run of uh, games when he scored in 11 games in a row. Some of those goals in that run, he could have hit many times and not scored. The, the kind of the vagaries of football will always kind of outwit science in some ways because football is so random compared to other sports. We can shine a light on a lot of stuff, but you're never gonna you're never gonna solve football. Getting back to to the book itself, do you want to flag up some stuff that surprised you personally that you were not expecting? Because obviously you you live this stuff every day. Yeah. The, the kind of basic structure of the book is the 25 years of the Premier League, so there's a kind of section on each season. So that was good, going back to the 90s and, and remembering. I mean, the thing that, going back through each of the, the seasons of the 90s, what people talk about now particularly is, you know, they worry about the Premier League becoming very polarised. Look in the sort of mid-90s, when it was least polarised, when the gap between the top and the bottom was smallest. You know, some of those seasons were, were pretty forgettable, like 96, 97 wasn't a classic. And then you obviously moved towards the 2000s with the obviously the Premier League teams, particularly the big four, were so defensively strong at that point and that obviously translated into into European success, which has, you know, vanished in the in this decade. Um, but then it's not just about that. There's, as I mentioned, there's a chapter on the history of data, there's one on the why World Cups aren't entertaining anymore. And there's one on Liverpool going 27 years without winning the league, which, you know, statistically is unlikely. You know, every other big team plus, you know, if you had said to a Liverpool fan in 1990, Leeds are going to win the league before you, they'd have been a bit surprised. If you said Blackburn are going to do it, they'd be pretty surprised, um, especially if you said Kenny Dalglish was going to be their manager. <laughs> and then if you'd said Leicester were going to do it, they'd have just walked out the room, I imagine. It kind of examines that. And then the flip to that is obviously there's a big thing on Arsene Wenger. No manager really has had his longevity with such a, a split in his career. You know, the first half, so successful, three league titles, you know, top two nearly every season, two European finals, and then since then. But the the real killer stat, I think, on that is that if you look at his win percentage for both periods, it's almost exactly the same to you know, maybe one percentage point. So it's not like he's winning Wait, less. It's Is that also not because I don't know what year it was, but it was unusual for teams to get more than 80 points and now you regularly have two, three yeah. teams well, a mean, season getting 80 points. That is the case. That's obviously what's behind it. And if you look last season, Arsenal's final points total 75 would have been enough to win the league in the 90s. It's not that Wenger's kind of declined necessarily. It's that he came in with a massive competitive advantage and he's kind of enjoyed that advantage and kind of stood still and everyone's overtaken him, which happens in a lot of sports. But, you know, what what's unusual is that he's still there and it seems that the, the kind of issues that he, he faces are, are kind of there in perpetuity. Right? <laughs> I, I'm interested in one thing you said that, which I hadn't really thought about, that English clubs a decade ago were more defensive and at the same time they were successful in Europe. Now they're more they're more attacking you're talking about the the, the top English yeah, clubs. Yeah. They're generally more rubbish in Europe. Are there numbers that bear this out? Yeah, I mean, I think the three lowest scoring Premier League seasons were all, I think it was like 05, 06, 06, 07, 07, 08, which is kind of the Mourinho, Benitez heyday. Um, and Arsenal in a Champions League final as well. Yeah. I mean, there was that as well. England had a, at least one finalist yeah. for about five or six years in a row. I find that interesting then. So, like, 
they've gone from that to Pochettino, Klopp, Pep, to being much more front foot. Also because that's what other teams in Europe have done. And now they're not as good. But I think this is where, where Bayern or Real or Barca, they know that they'll win 28, 30 games a season come what may. The Premier League, it has become more competitive over the last few seasons. Mainly for games did Chelsea win last year? 30. Uh-huh. But the first first English team to ever <laughs> do that in a 38-game season. I mean, that, you know, that was an anomaly. Book Outside the Box, uh, it's out now. I can buy this online. Yeah, I can buy it's this in... online. It's in all your favorite bookshops. And, and if they don't have it, they'll order it from me. They will. There you go. Duncan Alexander, thank you so much. Thank you. Time now for some quick hits. Arsenal win again, defeating uh, Brighton 2-0. But, Bill, did we write them off a little too early? You in particular? Um, well, I, personally, I thought they'd finish fifth, and, and look at the table now, and they're, they're fifth. Uh, so it, it's no, they're not really fifth; they're fourth. Fifth, according to the game this morning. Yeah. How many points do Arsenal have? Well, joint. Thank you. Joint fourth on yes. uh, points, but then you've got this thing called goal difference. Yeah, I don't believe in I don't believe in goal <laughs> difference, especially when they've played different teams from the other team that are in, in fourth place. So there. Anyway. Okay, they're joint fourth on Thank points. You. Um, but there's no real change. They're playing the same style as ever. You could say they, they had a, a fantastic performance in, in drawing with uh, away to Chelsea. They got a deserved draw there. But uh, overall, you get these good runs of five or six wins in a row. Sanchez and Ozil, who are two of their best players, have contributed very little thus far, right? Because of their different injuries and issues and weirdness, right? Yeah, well, so as, now I, you expect them to pick up the pace if they're going to be fit and happy all well, season long. Uh, uh, Ozil, I wouldn't say he's a—he's nothing like a title-winning player. Not in the—not in Arsenal. Yeah, how many team, World Cups have you won? <laughs> he's a top four player. I'm not <laughs> a top four player, I accept that. But San- Sanchez is, a, yeah, absolute okay. genius, no doubt about it. And they're, uh, yeah, they're a great team. That they're—they're they're a member of the top six. They could right, certainly finish right, in the top all right, four. All right. Okay. Fine. Fine. No, no love for you, Gunnar. Sorry, not from him. Manchester United put four past Palace as Maron Fellaini bags two. Allison want to show the large man with large hair some appreciation because Mourinho's come to love him. Yeah, no, I've always liked Fellaini. He suffered from being uh, too heavily associated uh, with David Moyes, and um, he <laughs> gets like he suffered from being associated with the Rote Arbefaction and the Bader Meinhof gang in the sixties. Poor yeah, Moyes, a bit like that, a bit like that. He looks like he's a bit industrial, but he's not. He's actually very effective and clever player. And when Mourinho decides he wants to show someone some love, it does matter. I mean, he can be so critical of, of players, you know. He decides they don't have the eth- work ethic, he's getting rid of them. But he's decided to give some effort to building up Fellaini's confidence and it has paid dividends. And now he's apparently, people are using the phrase, cult figure about him. Yeah, a cult figure who presumably will go back on the bench when Pogba's fit, yeah? Mm-hmm. Burnley win at Everton, and weirdly, they have eight points on the road and just five at home. Bill, any clever theories? It's hard to work out why they're suddenly doing better away, given that they, the four teams they've played have all been in the, the, the top seven. But um, one thing I would say is they just defend brilliantly. They, they pack the area around the D, and they're just prepared to, to block shots uh, Ben, me and James Tarkovsky, they must get taken to the medical room after every game because they just get their bodies get battered by the ball, but they're just brilliant at blocking shots. 
I'm wondering if you're giving in to stereotype an image because it's the gravelly voiced one, right? If this was if this was some some fancy foreign manager, maybe with like glasses and a skinny tie, would you be saying it's a tactically brilliant defensive setup? As no, opposed I, well, to just I, like I'm, they get their big center halves in the way of the ball. Firstly, I'm saying it is a tactically brilliant <laughs> setup. Secondly, I'm saying it uh, just I'm simply looking at the figures. They've got the worst shots difference. That's shots by their opponents against them uh, minus their own shots. They've, they've, their opponents have had about eight. I think it's 85 shots more than they have. And that's the worst in the Premier League this season. Yet they're six in the table. And it was a similar story last season as well. They just they tactically they get it right. They sit back and they block the shots. Are they going to regress to the mean? Uh, well, it's it's quite a long term that they've been doing this, so I think you have to start saying that this is the the mean. Speaking of Everton, many fans are calling for Ronald Koeman's head. Alison, he's your mate, although I suspect Henry might like him even more. Um, will you defend him? I'm not sure I can, Gab. Not sure I can. I was in um, Italy when they played Atalanta, and I was genuinely shocked at how dreadful they were and you all know I always keep a special eye out on Gilfie Sigurdsson and to see the way in that game he was trying to orchestrate players telling players where to run where to be uh, how to defend pointing at all the empty spaces and closing down that wasn't being done it was an absolute mess and that might well be the lowest point of the season for them but Kuman is not weaving any magic in helping them to get out of it. He did some things that the fans wanted him to do and I wanted him to do um, against Burnley. He dropped Rooney because Rooney just gets in the way of Sigurdsson. They're, they're, exactly, they're trying to be exactly the same player and it's just a mess. He gave Calvert-Lewin time, brought Tom Davis on. But really, they're a team without pace. It's as though he's he thinks, I don't know, he's back in Holland or something. He's not playing in the Premier League. It's, it's, it's slightly bizarre how, how, how dreadful they are. Sorry, Ronald. Hope you can bounce back soon. Only five teams in the Premier League have more points than Watford, who grab a late, late equaliser at West Brom through Richarlison. Bill, Harry Redknapp is surprised because he's come out and says, sure, couldn't name more than four or five of their players. Are you surprised? I am surprised, given how many injuries they've had among their centre-backs. Uh, but you shouldn't really be surprised if you look what's happened in the last two seasons. That This is the third season in the Premier League. Their strategy is get a new foreign manager in, have a huge turnover of players. And the, the first two seasons, they were in the top half on Boxing Day. And it looks like it could well happen again this season. It's kind of hard to find a, man, a pattern there when they have they've had three different managers and they're three very different managers too, though, right? With Marco Silva's case, he uh, certainly made a, a difference with Hull. I think he improved them quite a bit halfway through last season. So uh, you could say he's uh, shown his abilities in the Premier League. There you go, instant impact. You don't need time. It's just a lie that managers come up with. Tottenham are up to third after beating uh, Huddersfield 4-0. September's over. Does it mean Harry Kane will stop scoring, Alison? Harry Kane will keep on scoring until the World Cup, which is in the summer. He doesn't like the summer. This is the the irony of having an England striker who's hot, hot, hot. He doesn't like it when it's hot. Well, he's English. Maybe the skin tone, the maybe, sunshine. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Mark my words. He will be phenomenal. And then in the World Cup finals, he'll struggle to find a back of the net. I hope you're wrong because the more I see him, the more likable I find him. Unlike Dele Alli, who, by the way, is a little bonus thing. That was kind of a stupid dive to take, right? To be fair, he did look shamefaced afterwards. And even even the opponents around him were going on, never mind, Telly, maybe you'll dive better next time. <laughs> I have a question for you. Uh, it's quite serious, actually. I saw a lot of um, 
online footage and TV footage of harrowing events in Barcelona. Um, but football was part of it. Can you tell us what was going on? Yeah, so this is a, a, a really complex issue. And if you care about it, I invite you rather than making summary judgments to go out there and educate yourself on, uh, on, on the sides of this dispute. Um, what I think most people can agree on is that um, it was just horrendous to watch uh, police in riot gear behaving that way. And um, the, the reason it has to do, obviously, with uh, the, the Catalan uh, referendum, which was held, which, according to the Spanish government, was held illegally because it was uh, was un- unconstitutional. Barcelona as a football club obviously found themselves caught into it because since the 1960s and probably even before that, they've been sort of a, a symbol of uh, of Catalan nationalism. They had to make a decision. Uh, long and short of it is, as these scenes were going off all over the city, a lot of Barcelona supporters said, you must not play this game. One group of supporters says, if you play, we're going to invade the pitch. So Barcelona's intention, and also to make a stand of protest against uh, the, the heavy-handed policing, was to was to not play the game. And they asked for postponement. The Spanish league said, no, there's no reason to postpone this match. You will play this game. Depending who you believe, they were even willing to go and, and, and just simply refuse to play and take the points penalty. The players uh, said, no, no, what's this points penalty nonsense? Let's play. And in the end, they... They found a compromise uh, playing behind closed doors, which was completely surreal in a 90,000-seat stadium. They ended up winning 3-0. Gerard Piquet, obviously strong Catalan nationalist, after the game was in tears, he's even offered to go and uh, not play for Spain again if, if his presence creates problems. We talk about the separation of sport and politics. I frankly don't see how it could be separated here. Hello, I'm Paddy Von Baer and I'm here with Charlie Scott. Hello there. And together we are The Sweeper, the uh, free fantasy Premier League tipping service from The Times. Uh, you can sign up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football and uh, you will have an email dropping in your inbox every Friday morning full of hints and tips uh, as well as access to our mini league and uh, an eligibility for our monthly competitions and all the prizes that come with it. This weekend was another fruitful one for the sweeper. We tipped Harry Kane at Huddersfield, as I'm sure most people in the country did, so that's more of a must-have rather than a tip. But two goals for him in a 4-0 win brought 13 points for him. But the best tip that we had in Friday's email was probably Stephen Ward, the Burnley fullback, who registered an assist in their 1-0 win at Everton, and that picked him up 12 points, which was great. Elsewhere, Richarlison scored another goal for Watford in their 2-2 draw against West Brom. That's the second time this season that he scored after the 90th minute, and that was 10 points for him. And then Arsenal's defence, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, we said, get on that bandwagon and get Hector Bella in, Saad, Kolasinac or Nacho Monreal. The three of them between them have picked up 53 points in the last two game weeks, which, yeah, that's pretty nice returns there. Heading into the international break now, of course, which means, uh, unfortunately, no Premier League action next weekend. But there's uh, there's much to consider. And uh, as ever, we've put together a weekend recap on the Timesport website, which features a couple of ideas of players to be bringing in. Uh, but also some advice on uh, when to bring them in, which is, uh, which is not to rush into your transfers this week. As we know, plenty can happen during the international break and injuries can, uh, can really sting you. In terms of the uh, Time Sport Mini League, it's uh, Greg Saunders, uh, a.k.a. FPL Fly, who is one of 
of our uh, pre-season experts, you might remember. So um, the cream is rising to the top as he uh, scored 87 points this weekend after handing Kane the triple captain to move top of our mini-league. And finally, of course, if you do sign up to the sweeper at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football, you'll be uh, in with a chance of winning our competitions and uh, our September competition is live at the moment. Still some tickets left for the Graham Souness Times Plus event in Glasgow, which is on October the 24th. To be in the mix for that, just sign up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football, and then in Friday's email, you will get Paddy's teaser question. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to my excellent guests, Alison Rudd, The Return of Bill Edgar, and Duncan Alexander. Please do check out his book. Um, I found it interesting. And even if you're turned off by this sort of thing, it's actually a really good read. Remember, just eight pounds for an eight-week trial. Just search The Times online and you can subscribe. You can access highlights for every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, and the FA Cup from the third round, as well as all our excellent content. It's international break next week, but don't worry. We're going to be back next Monday when uh, England will surely, surely have booked their place at the World Cup in Russia. Till next time. Bye-bye. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.